Hey everybody, this is Eric Wright, the host of the Disco Posse Podcast. Welcome aboard! Uh, hopefully you're joining us from Spotify. We're actually pretty glad we're over on the Spotify platform now, uh, fully and completely. With that, let's get started. This episode is brought to you by Veeam, uh, Veeam.com, so V-E-E-A-M.com. Uh, Veeam are longtime friends of my blog and the podcast, uh, so big thanks to them for, for sponsoring us. Uh, we are having a great conversation today with Patrick Hubbard. Patrick is the principal head geek at SolarWinds. More than that, he's just a spectacular human. He's somebody who I've uh, had an incredible respect for and been lucky enough to do some stuff in the field meet him at different events and listen to him and be a longtime reader uh, and sort of student. Patrick talks about developer advocacy, the challenges that we have, why it's kind of not working for a lot of folks, uh, why people have misconceptions about what it is. But really, we just get into how to create good, meaningful relationships between people across teams. And it's just been a pleasure to be a part of this this episode. So please do listen in if you're into tech, if you've ever uh, read a blog, if you've ever uh, gone through and been involved in the community in tech, this is an important episode for you. With that, let's get started. Hi, this is Patrick Hubbard, Principal Head Geek at SolarWinds, and you're listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. Welcome, Patrick. Uh, this is this is one of those really really cool opportunities and shows because I've I've done a ton of stuff out in the field and inevitably I've always used you and what you do as a map to what I believe is a successful version of me. And, oh, and well, well, I don't I don't know how I'm going to live up to that. <laughs> Partly because. Even you know my previous management team. So I I, I was lucky enough to work with Gita Sashjevs. Gita was amazing. She came. Uh, she was the C- I think she was a CMO or she was CMO. Mm-hmm. yeah at SolarWinds. She was the CMO at at Turbonomic then VM Turbo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Gita always mentioned like this is what I would love to do. And it was done very successfully by our head geek. And she was always very good to kind of like just put the role on it. And the more I said, like, who is your head geek? And then she says, Patrick Hubbard. I'm like, oh, I know Patrick. And I'm like, I've been following his stuff for a long time. So what's really cool is to, for people that want to put the face to the name, head geek, love the title. Uh, what exactly, to do the old opposite, what exactly do you do here, Patrick? <laughs> what, what is it would you say that you do? Uh, it's amazing how, how that movie just does not age. Uh, yeah, so, okay, so first of all, um, once upon a time, I was the head geek. Uh, now we have a team of amazing head geeks uh, and can we, we can be a lot more places. We can talk in depth about a lot more uh, products and a lot more um, just challenges that the uh, industry has. So first of all, I'm not the head geek. <laughs> It's a, it's a team of us now. Um, uh, but second, it's one of the things that's really great. And I've been at SolarWinds a really long time, um, especially in tech. I started in 2007, uh, right about the time that the company um, moved from Tulsa, Oklahoma and, and launched in Austin. And the, um, <clears throat> sorry, let me take a sip of water here. 
Yeah, this is the the joys of podcasting in uh, you know all day, all night. You you you're you have to talk for a living per, between meetings and content. You you produce a lot of vocal work. So I, if I was you, I'd have one of those like chloroseptic sprays, just constantly just spritzing into my area. <laughs> yep, yep. So uh, you, you you're gonna just clip a couple things, right? Ah, we're gonna. We, that's the beauty part. I love natural. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, then we're gonna go natural. Great. Okay. So this is an insiders podcast. Cool. Uh, so what I was going to say was, you no, know, one of the one of the reasons uh, that I have I have stayed at SolarWinds so long is that I have I've been really fortunate to just dumb luck my way um, into something that is a really natural fit for me. Um, I'm a little bit of an odd duck. Um, my my handle uh, is a little bit longer than I'd like. Uh, I was kind of late to social and my name's common enough. I couldn't get any of that. But um, fervent and, and geek are, are absolutely real for me. And that... Um, process of coming to terms with what is evangelism and what is advocacy and, you know, really how can you help people with technology? Um, it takes a while to sort of figure out how you want to plug into that, especially, and Eric, you know this, I mean, we are essentially, you know, we sort of fall under technical marketing and that can mean a lot of different things. Um, just as an engineer who, who, you know, makes the, the move to the dark side, you have to kind of come to terms with that. And after a while, you realize like it is kind of nice to pay the mortgage and the marketing team does actually have some resources that maybe dev and certainly you know, support or um, internal IT wouldn't have. But realizing that you really represent a community. If you're if you're lucky, and like for us, you know, uh, with over a hundred thousand members of the Thwack community, um, really being you know their voice, uh, and 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 not speaking so much from from me or from my experience, but instead listening to the stories that they tell, like watching the conversations that they're having in the community, working with them, whether it's you know sitting in on uh, uh, UX design sessions or mostly just you know shaking their hand and getting to know them, uh, whether it's at a, a user group or, you know, obviously uh, trade show booths, but being able to really still essentially be who I was years and years ago when I was a developer or when I was in ops and, but now get to help kind of curate the fire hose of content that is thrown at them now by a wide variety of vendors. And it's, it's not so much like selection or listening to marketing and then deciding what you're going to talk about. But instead, you're following your passion. You know, what do you know? Your, your, your core is still the fact that you're not going to talk about something unless you've installed it and taken it apart and customized it and figured out whether the thing is actually good or not. Because when you walk out onto a stage or you're standing in front of a camera or you know, participating in a podcast, you are standing on what you know. And that opportunity to take something that maybe was the passion that got you into technology in the first place and then carry that forward at the time of your life that you have learned 30 languages and you have watched, you know, um, you look at Kubernetes now and containers and you think, oh, I remember when we did virtualization, right? And, and having watched um, the industry um, more or less get enterprise to re-implement now on three major cycles of the same basic business functions on three completely different platforms, you start to say, wait a minute, how can I give back here? It's not that you know you don't love learning new languages. Right now, um, I'm all into Go and I've, 
I've, I've realized that uh, working with Raspberry Pis was making me a little dishonest, right? Because um, <laughs> well, they're fantastic. They are great. Um, but Not representative they, of production environments, right? <laughs> well, yes and no. But I mean, I, I had some Y2K projects back in the day at American Airlines. So um, the, you know, why software works the way that it does or why people use memory the way they do or, you know, the basic questions for, you know, when you talk about efficiency and multi-tenancy and, you know, the things that you and I talk about now, being able to say, well, you know, that Pi's got four gig of memory and it has a full Linux tool chain on it. And I basically am logging into a teeny full stack, you know, computer. Uh, instead, going to Arduinos has forced me to be a lot more honest. So that, that process of, oh, okay, fine, I'll go back to C++ or, or, okay, let's get out the debugger. And now I'm actually looking at, you know, uh, you, you're not exactly doing assembler, but you're, you're way lower level. And the excitement of that carries forward into the other things that you do. Yeah. Now, the, this is the, the funny thing too, is because you've bridged, uh, you've bridged the gap and sort of you cross two camps very, very well, which makes you very effective at what you do because it's actually a rarity there you we describe the kind of unicorn role to fill is the evangelist or the advocate or whatever like chief something or other and and the reason why it's such a unicorn role is because number one you have to understand what 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 goes on in that day to day technically you have to understand how to do that thing so you have to understand why it gets done you have to understand how to do the thing and even more so, you generally have to very quickly relive or live a hunk of history as to why it doesn't work or it doesn't work like the world thinks it should. And this is where we get excited by technology, but we also are excited by the fact that we love why it doesn't work and like why we can't get it to work. Because yeah, bro we're all, broken you know, is interesting. Yeah. And when we look at the excitement of a new technology, whether it's a language or or a tool or whatever it is, I'm also I've, I'm old enough now that I know I'm like just just wait, kid. That excitement will die down. Like it, you know, when I there was the rash of new applications that came in. Let's just say about two years ago or like a year and a half ago, and they would lead with like a brand new startup, and it would say you know application written in Go. I'm like, doesn't matter to me. I don't care if it was written in Fortran. Does it work? Does it solve a problem? And so those are the nerd bits. Now the new one is like, it's AI. I'm like, look, I, we have it all over our website. I, right. Of course, it's, you know, I, I have another product that, I'm, that I built. And I said right on it, like, you know, AI enabled, powered by community. I'm like, just, I feel like a douchebag writing it. But like, hey, look, gets you in Google searches. So... The reason why I bring all this up is you have to go and you have to like check out the new thing to then find out why it's like the old thing and then live that experience on someone's behalf so that you can bring empathy back to why it's going to be hard for them to do it or how to and like so like did you study this Patrick or did it just happen through living that experience okay so so first of all remember i am not a professional at this um this this came <laughs> this came to me way later and uh especially in my case like i i am not um uh super uh polished i'm actually socially a little bit awkward 
and um, I, I paper over it with some charisma, uh, but I stand on my technical knowledge and it has worked out for me over the years because I mean, for people who haven't been a part of either a development team or an operations team, it's hard for them to understand like, what do you mean you spent 45 minutes arguing with a peer about, you know, the, the, the nuance of a single character in a YAML file, right? So um, <laughs> that, that process of being, you know, I guess now we talk about being data-driven, but really being fact-driven. Or if you're looking at, you know, now if you're instead of, you know, talking about alerts, you're talking about signals, or instead of monitoring, you're talking about observability. Um, those are all much, much high, high, are very high level, but underneath it, you've fought those battles, usually when prod was down. And the way that, uh, pe that, Many people and, and a lot of the, the folks that I follow who I really respect are also a little awkward with fantastic things to say. They are incredibly helpful for their communities, um, but they are, they are also using their, their confidence comes from what they know. So that, that, you know, the, the joke being, you got to be ready to talk to folks after you come off stage, right? There are, there are going to be people who are really excited. Um, some of them are going to be experts. Some of them are going to be brand new and maybe they're worried about risk and you're going to be having a, a conversation really almost at a business level while you are theoretically, you know, knowledgeable in that technology. Um, and some of them are going to be really mad, right? They, for whatever, <laughs> for whatever reason, either they want to prove you wrong or, you know, usually um, maybe they had some bad experience somewhere and learning to, to deal, not deal with, to, to realize the, the opportunity of those conversations. Like when somebody's mad and they're talking to you, that's an opportunity to create a relationship that's going to last a very long time, right? So people they, don't get the importance, the fact that they're mad and talking to you, you won. Right, like it's, well, no, they're crying out for help. They're, that's it. <laughs> their anger is actually hurting, right? So, yeah. so to your point of of empathy, like it's a it's a part of the process of getting there where you hear somebody who's 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 really upset, and you just listen and and you 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 hear them, like you really pay attention, look past the emotion of that thing, and then you restate the question or what they asked, because a lot of times, you know, if someone's, especially if it's, if it's something that's difficult, or maybe they don't know a lot about it yet, or are they're being forced, it's, especially when it's technology that's being forced on them. And I think you and I are seeing that now where, you know, the biggest problem in IT is, is just complexity, right? Is that they have been buying hardware and software for two decades, thinking that, that, just this one thing, you know, vendors have been promising like, hey, you, you just bring this on, on campus and it's going to solve all your problems. And, and we saw that with DevOps where the, you know, SEO marketing crews all got on it and it's like, hey, it's DevOps in a box. Just bring this in. And <laughs> like, yeah. it, it, this is so much bigger than that. You, no, that doesn't work. And so they, they really, um, the IT professionals right now are really looking for answers and they're not looking for technical answers they are looking for advice and the great thing about that is you uh you know once you get you know some years in you have been there you have had that line of increasingly higher ranking exec standing behind your chair while you're down 
um, asking for, hey, if you could just send a, a, an update email on where we are on uh, when we're going to be up again. And you're like, I, I'm, I'm trying to fix this. Just, <laughs> exactly. just back off. And so the thing that would be best for production would be career limiting, right? You, you, once you've had those experiences, it is one of the great things about tech is you get to connect with folks in a way that maybe in a lot of industries you can't because you go immediately to, you can describe in a minute, here's what our organization looks like, or here's what my shop looks like. And in that minute, you can cover all of the base technologies. You can, you can touch on like organizational or siloed uh, frustrations between teams. You can, you can get to where you know where they sit and you can almost imagine the cube that they're sitting in, right? Yeah. And so then you get to talking about the solution. And so that's what I meant by, I'm okay being a little awkward. I mean, I, I'm not like terribly awkward, but I, I don't, I'm not a sports ball guy and I don't like that thing of getting started in the first couple of minutes with uh, somebody you don't know. And you're supposed to, you know, kind of in between sports and the weather or something that's, you know, socially acceptable. I can go in 10 seconds directly to, Oh, let's talk about, um, you know, how we're going to deploy a particular, let's, let's talk about CI, CD, um, uh, all the way down and you know the do you want to do software defined jenkins or do you want to use something else right so those it's it's that's the great thing about what we about this industry and the opportunity that we have to have conversations that are helpful is that all of the you know the kind of meta and the carrier for the content is really small the the data is mostly what this is about and so it really i think invites an opportunity for people of many different backgrounds and with many different ideas and motivations to all participate what's well, and it's funny that you of 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 people i know especially there's a, a of the rarity of the capabilities that you bring to this industry and this role you also you talk about the idea that like you're introverted and whatever, and people look at this and they're like, Patrick, I like see you on camera, you're on podcasts, you do content, you do all this stuff all the time. Like people don't realize like this, I'm a, this is a professional like you are literally a professional extrovert, but when given the choice, I get the same thing all the time. Be like, oh, you must be love going to events. Cause you get to like talk to people all the time. Like, no, you understand. I'm like, on the verge of like walking out most of the time when there's a large room full of people talking. I love listening to it. I love seeing the people watching aspect of it. I love taking that in. But the moment that I have to interact in a way that's not natural for me, I really struggle. And the point where I literally have like, like just, I, I gotta go. And I just got, I literally will walk out and like, I got to go do a lap around the room, you know, around the conference center, you know, I, I got to take up smoking just so I got a reason to leave the room or something. And however, I'm also cognizant of the fact that I can then get on a microphone or get on a stage. I've gotten to compensate for my general hatred of public things to becoming particularly good at public things I still struggle with it. It's just that I've gotten really good at the struggle. Uh, the struggle of imposter syndrome is real. And yeah. if, and quite frankly, if you aren't scared, something between nervous and scared, but if you're not really 
sweating a little bit in those couple of minutes before they call your name or, or you do those ones where it's kind of self-service and the room is filling up and then you're supposed to figure out when to start and you know, all of that business when you're like focused on this is where I'm going to start my presentation and just getting through the first couple of minutes. Um, if you're not nervous, then you're not really connected to the, to the conversation that you're about to have. Um, especially if you're a maniac like me and do all of your demos live. Um, and I, I have had some people that I really respect tell me that I'm an idiot for doing that. Um, <laughs> and, and a couple of times the demo guides, uh, I did not uh, uh, burn enough offerings and I have died on stage. But um, if that thing of, and that's really one thing that's different is that I, I don't know about you, but I, I could never be on camera again. I could never walk out on stage again and I would be perfectly okay. I don't do this because I wanted to do it. I didn't see this opportunity like, hey, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, bump my profile. I mean, if you look at my, you know, my, my, what, uh, what do they call it? a personal brand, uh, you look at like my LinkedIn profile or I don't know what I'm doing and I never update it. And I'm not, it's not about like trying to build a following or something else. I mean, we are not Kardashians. That is not the name of this game. It is not about some numerical reach or impressions or whatever. It is about helpfulness. Right. And so maybe I think that that might be the thing that's really great and why I urge so many people that anyone that has an interest in speaking, anyone who wants to try blogging, I mean, go on Medium, pick a site that you want and start writing um, because there are, for every one person that you see or that you, you, you see on social or maybe you, you see something that their company promoted, whatever else, there are hundreds with fantastic stories to tell. And so sort of the, the meta advocacy of what we do is the community is really good about identifying those people and encouraging them. And you will see people suddenly start uh, retweeting someone, you know, someone with a large, large following, start retweeting somebody you've never heard of. And then you start looking at their content or maybe, maybe it's someone who's just has fantastic retweets. Like they've got great taste in information that would help you. And so I think one of the things that we do that we're, that we're really good at in this industry and it feels one of the reasons I like participating is that is that is that that welcoming makes this a a truly community endeavor. And so when you see someone who is trying to solve a difficult technical problem working in a cost center and let's let's you know let's call it what it is IT is a cost center, right? So right, it is it is it is the one of the the most impoverished um, parts of the business at a time that you have a big push toward digital transformation, whatever that is, and um, increased complexity. And oh, by the way, hybrid, which we never sold you. We just, you know, a bunch of vendors just sold you a bunch of stuff that then said, we're going to, oh, you'll just connect it all up on your own. Don't worry about it. And by the way, this is only temporary because you're just going to go to cloud and you won't have anything on-prem. And instead, oh no, hybrid is forever. And everybody just sort of waved their hands at that. And it's on you to solve that. Um, th this is a time that we need each other more than ever. And so finding opportunities to really pull new voices in is a big part of this. The thing that I describe uh, speaking and why I, the one reason I love, and I'm kind of, I'm going back this year, I'm going back on the road, so to speak, like to do some more engagements because I I actually use it I and I describe it to people as listening to 500 people at a time and it's mm -hmm. because when you're 
what they don't get is that like same as this like why do i do a podcast it's not because i just i get to call people and say hey do you want to be on a podcast not to like hey do you want to take an hour and talk with me about something no one will take that call but you tell them it's a podcast they're like oh it's a thing so when i go and i'm able to speak at an event it can i can bring a hypothesis to that stage that's generally tested a bit, right? I, I always joke and say, I never ask a question that I don't know the answer to. I, it's, I, what it really means, it's, that sounds arrogant, but it's, I never ask a question that I haven't already built as a hypothesis and done some testing against. Mm -hmm. So when I then go up on stage, I treat it like a comedian would. Like I've got like hunks of content that I know that work. And I know the three major things that I want people to pull out of the session. And I don't have a script. I just know like the handful of talking points I got to hit. I know what my animations are on the slide. And so I use like triggers and I use very visual active things to draw people through the experience. But what I'm doing is I'm staring out into that audience, looking for reactions mm -hmm. to know like, yeah, that worked, that didn't work. Somebody laughed. Okay, good. So is this, so then, cause the idea is. Or, or that, somebody disagreed with you. I love that. Right. Like, like I think, it, I think uh, probably for you, I love being wrong. I learn faster when I'm wrong. And it may be, you know, going back to prod is down, but the, the, the tension of realizing that you've overlooked something or there's a, a new detail for you to go discover or, oh my gosh, I've been saying that for two years and it is patently incorrect. Being able, <laughs> yeah. being able to fix that. I mean, that's what we do in technology. We fix things. We, we like to create order and set things right. And so, so being wrong is a part of it. But Eric, let me ask you this. Do you, which do you find easier, um, live conversation or video? Oh, video scares me most because I'm like, like I, like I'm a six with humor. Like me on video is a bad thing. This is why I do an audio podcast. <laughs> and I don't even have a good voice. <laughs> I can I can emulate the the general radio voice to a degree, but I'm like I've got this awful big nose that actually doesn't move move sound through. It just makes a nasal projection. It's uh, so I actually I when I do video recordings of stuff, I do it like I'm giving it live because, and I, I talk to like video demos, like I'm talking to a person. And that's probably why like my plural site content has been successful in how it, because people listen to it and they're like, it was actually like you were talking to me, mm -hmm. not that you were explaining something, that you were literally talking to me, even though I wasn't there. And that's, so that's why video, I, I enjoy it for certain aspects, but I know like scripted stuff I, I struggle with personally. And I think it's because I've got this like kind of like a weird sort of level of, I'm on some kind of spectrum from being unable to stay to a set of words. I can hit a talking point and I know a theme, right? but I won't hit the specific words. My VP of, of uh, marketing, he's incredible. He's literally like a screenwriter and he'll come to you. He'll be like, so Patrick, just imagine a world where you didn't have to think about and he imagine like la he lays this thing out and it's like like something that you would imagine steve jobs would say and he's like just think about that come back to me like let me know am i on the right track with whatever 
And if you could just, and, and then if you could just drop it as well as I just did, that'd be fantastic. And yeah. Thinking, and, and then that will happen. I'll be like, yep, got it. Cool. Like the idea. And then I'll kind of explain it to somebody and they're like, oh yeah, I like the idea, whatever. And then like, oh, you know, three days later, he'll come back to me and he'll say, hey, so I heard what you were explaining, but you didn't quite like say it exactly. Like, and then he would say it to me like word for word, every intonation, like it was, it's perfect. And I was like, oh man, you and I are way different people. Cause I have no idea what I just said like an hour ago, but I kind of know what I needed to say. Right. And I know the emotion that I needed to create. And that's my, that's my tactical empathy sort of approach to things is like, I'm going to pull something back in so that I can tune the next time I say that thing. And that's why I also, I, I don't like video in a way because it's, it seems final. Like it's like, Oh, you know, like I, I like the live, even though you can, even though you can do a lot in post, it's still never good enough. It's that, it's that, uh, analysis paralysis opportunity oh. with video. Yeah. Well that's, and that's the other thing too. People always ask like, are you going to edit this? Right. I'm like, no, <laughs> because like I could edit all day and, right. and, and it would be yeah, just if you do it good. once. Yeah. And, and so I, I'm, I'm a weird one. So like you, if give me down production, I'm like, hold my beer, hang on, let's do this. Yes, like, I, run, I, run to, I run toward the outage. Doesn't matter what it is, but ask me to like, we need to have like an 11 word description of this product. And, and it needs to fit in this box so it can only be 92 characters. Yeah, I'm dead. I will sit there for like five hours. And unless I can find somebody else that did it that I can emulate, that's where I struggle. I'm not creative in that way. It's such a weird, it's a weird thing, you know, how I just, I get stuck on stuff like that. Like, so I always tell people like, why am I in product marketing? Like, because I can't tell you the like 11 perfect words to describe this thing. I can tell you a story that'll make you weep at the end of it. And you'll love our product because of the way I told that story. No. <laughs> yeah, like, that's, it, it's that's, like, that's not how it works, right? The, you, you, I think that's what a lot of people forget. And, and, and if you, um, I've, I've been fortunate in my career to have been a, a product manager and PM and I've had a lot of other roles in SE. And I mean, I, I uh, just kind of a little background on me. I, I was a developer for almost 10 years at American Airlines uh, in a former life and then went to ops in the late 90s because I, I was looking at operations and I thought, well, wow, you know, with a little bit of automation and um, a little bit of a, bring a little bit of a different eye to what you're doing here, y'all could do your deployments during the week, right? You, there are so many things that you could do to make your lives easier and I want to help you with that. And uh, nobody was ready for that. And now, you know, we we found ourselves uh, talking about DevOps and we're still having that same conversation. And so you have it's as much, you know, to your point about the, the conversation and getting people together at this point to really make a difference. Um, I mean, you've seen that before where somebody says uh, almost, uh, you hear a story about a team that's almost been shamed because they don't want to uh, cross train and form a single team. They want to remain at least, you know, in the Venn diagram somewhere within the circle that represents their interest. Because if you go to someone who's a developer and you say, hey, listen, uh, you know, that, that code's great. And what I want you to start thinking about is how are you going to babysit that in operations for two years, five years, 10 years, 15 years? You know, think about, you know, when you're here on the week, they're going to say, no, 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 I, I build new things. I innovate, yeah, I fix problems. Right. That's why I'm a developer. I don't want to be a part of ops. 
And if you talk to someone who is an amazing option engineer, we were talking about before, um, you know, like running toward the fire, uh, running toward the danger, um, that, that classic, you know, part of, I think all of us that likes to occasionally perform a heroic act, but you do not want to be a hero. That is not a part of IT, right? Because then you're that person and you will, you, that'll, that'll take you to that too important to promote role, right? Yeah. Um, but you say to that person like, hey, you know, first of all, no, forget Python. You know, you're going to learn Go and we need to get you set up with a tool chain and we need to start talking about how you're going to implement your delivery pipelines. And, and really, you know, we need to have an observability conversation and error budgets. And, and that person's going to say, I, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily interested in that. I like to um, uh, optimize my workloads and I like to reprovision and I like to um, deal with BGP configuration for branch offices, right? And I'm in the process of moving a bunch of manual configuration to SD-WAN. And you say, oh, no, no, we, let's talk about SDN. You know, you, there are so many other things that if, <laughs> yeah. you know, you could just do an overlay, to, uh, overlay controller topology here and, and, and you've lost that person. So um, the, there is an opportunity now though to really have conversations like to be going back to being being empathetic and being open and coming from a place of helpfulness to listen to both sides of that conversation and then help them just talk about the thing that they're trying to do like throw away the acronyms throw away all of the vendor labels hardware all the rest of it like have a conversation about what are the business objectives for that organization and then back everything else out of that. Yeah, it's the, it's going back, and this is also a, sort of an age thing that we, as young technologists, we are excited by the tech, and as older tech, senior is not the number of years you've been doing the thing, it's the evolution in how you think about what you do when you do the thing. And I learned early on of chasing the title. I became the youngest senior systems administrator at Sun Life in the history of the company. I, I said like, I don't understand why you can't become a senior engineer in 18 months. And they're like, you just can't. It's a three year minimum. And it's generally five to seven years because you have to go through all these stages and gates. And I was like, all right, all, you know, a challenge accepted. And I went through the path and I got the title unearned in a way because I kind of just like I aimed, I was just basically said, if I were to train just for this thing. Yeah, you work in the I, system. Yeah, so I, I got there. And then given that exposure, I then stole everyday knowledge from my senior peers and backed into the role that I had already gotten to say like, you know, hey, why would you actually do this, make this decision? You know, I was going into rooms doing architectural designs and then working with vendors. And you'd go through this whole thing with the vendor and then they would say, okay, good. Well, you, you guys put up the SOW. We'll do all this thing. We'll, we'll figure out what the first engagement will look like. And I'd be like, hey, this is great. You know, looking forward to it. Shake their hands and like that. And then you'd walk out of the room and you're like, man, that's really cool. We're going to be doing that thing with that, this company, this product. It's really neat. They're like, yeah, no, we're not going to buy that product. I'm like, why did you just say all that stuff? <laughs> I'm like, they're like, that's what we do. We get them to the next stage of negotiation. We decide if we can get it at an 80% discount. We may be, and I was like, oh, wow, you guys are working at a different level than me. And that was like the, the senior thing. So then the same thing with like production and, and empathy that I learned, it was 
my support was not of the technology, but of the people that are using that technology. And once I really attached the, the consumer and the end user to that thing, you know, what do we call them? We call them end losers. Like that was a, was a horrible oh. thing to do, oh. right? That's what, that's what the help desk would call them. And yeah. I was like, there is empathy. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So yeah, and then and then that person accidentally you've got a hot mic and they overhear it. And now this person who maybe is an expert in a particular part of the business and they are a sentinel for that one ticket that may make a huge difference in operation, and you've basically now dissuaded them from engaging, right? Yeah. And so then the next time something happens, like, oh, I'm not I'm not gonna open a ticket, and then you find yourself really down or maybe the risk for deployment or you know when you set a date suddenly goes up uh yeah I, I, that 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 process of really thinking about what helpfulness means is it doesn't stop with it and it doesn't stop with developers it goes all the way down to the especially the end user uh, i'll give you an example of that um a couple of years ago i didn't know anything about msps i mean you know i i Certainly, I've known people who've, who've run MSPs and people who've, you know, been techs and lots and lots of companies that have used MSPs to manage their manage their infrastructure. And um, SolarWinds has gotten to be uh, pretty heavily involved in MSPs. We're not, we're obviously not an MSP. That is that is contrary to our nature. We we do not do professional services. Uh, we do not do um, you know expensive hands-on force you to pay us to stay in a hotel stuff. But we do provide an awful lot of technology to MSPs who are then uh, managing environments for other companies. And when you think about it, so you, you think about it like, okay, so I'm going to learn about that because chances are I'm going to end up talking about it. And you discover that their challenge, like the number one challenge for MSPs is churn, right? Yeah. And the, if they can reduce churn by only a few percentage points, that can make a huge difference in um, you know, the, the growth of their companies. And <laughs> And so little things like um, secrets management, right? So there is a, a noticeable effect on churn if you can demonstrate better secret, uh, secrets management for, a, uh, for the customers that you serve. Like, you know, for you and me, hey, you got LastPass and then whatever your, your IT team is using, you have some sort of uh, internal secret store. But if you're managing five or 15 or 50 different customers and it's your techs who may come and go and protecting the, you know, the, the, the most important secrets of that, of that customer is really, really important. And so being able to talk about that and talk about secrets management and talk about, you know, artifacts and, and, um, you know, got a cross team communication around documents and, and even things like uh, dynamic distribution of uh, runbooks, that is not anything that I ever talked about. Now it's something that I talk about because I'm excited about that evangelist side of, oh my, this is the most amazing thing ever. Let me tell you about this. Yeah. Um, but then you temper it, you start thinking about, okay, well, how am I going to talk about this? And then you think about, wait a minute, those businesses that those MSPs are managing have my credit card numbers and they have my medical records, right? They have all kinds of information that is really important to me that it does not leak. And so that conversation that was at once, okay, this is really cool. It's brand new and shiny. It's, you know, continuing education in the very best sense turns into an opportunity to really help the broader community, including yourself. And so that, that cycle, when you can do that, I mean, it's almost like, you know, it's not that unlike 
explaining the, the basic fundamentals of a feedback loop if you're trying to actually build a DevOps organization. Um, that that cycle of finding the thing that's exciting and then determining that there is something that is applicable to the technology professionals who are gonna use it. And then the end users is the thing that validates what you're talking about or what you're broadcasting about or what you're creating a video about. And that's the, again, that platform of, of excitement plus understanding plus helpfulness that makes this um, role so just really exciting. Yeah. The, you know, the, the, one, the way I described it when I talked to, you know, the MSPs, especially, like you said, they, they work at a different scale and they have different kind of ways that they're measured in success. And, and like you said, churn's a huge, huge issue. And, and even just in general, like anything they do, like that's why automation is such a core fundamental to what they do because mm-hmm. they have to enable rapid onboarding and rapid offboarding. Sadly, like that's kind of like got to be ready to get them in and get them out so that you hopefully won't. Mm-hmm. I was talking with a bunch of different folks at an event one time and I said, you know, so this is why I shouldn't be in product marketing. I said, because I described our, our product as we automate the stuff that sucks so you can aut- automate the stuff that matters. Like, like let me, let me solve I, I, the stuff I, that I you like don't that. want to deal with. And then you can actually spend time doing mm-hmm. secrets management and customer onboarding and like better provisioning processes and stuff like that. And it was because again, like looking at the reason why people don't leave a provider, a, a vendor, a whatever, this lock-in thing is BS, right? So what, what, right. what, what you want is freedom. And freedom doesn't mean that you, you just go from place to place. Like no one takes an application and they move it from cloud to cloud. No one does that. That's a terrible idea. Yeah. But what they want to be able to- Yeah, there's to, no confusion about what multi-cloud means. Right. But they want to be able to. And mm-hmm. so, like you said, if I go to a company and they've got these like weird, rigid manual processes, I know it's hard to leave them. So I'm less likely to go to them. Right. And it's, it becomes a very interesting thing of the way that we test things and even working within teams. And this is why going to, you know, engaging with developers, engaging with operations teams, network teams and all this stuff. I started to look more on like, look, I'm never going to do the thing you do, but tell me about what's like, what's hard about what you do. And I, I used to do it in the company when I was working in just regular IT operations. I started in desktop support and I was next thing you know, I was teaching CCNA classes to the networking team. Because mm-hmm. they're like, well, wait a second, you know, why are you doing that? I'm like, because I wanted to get my CCNA. And they said, well, and, and because you'd had an experience where you physically tracked down someone with a bad wireless NIC yeah. that, was po- that was walking around the building and poisoning APs. Exactly. It's not theor- it wasn't theoretical to you. Yeah. And so I, I had a vested interest personally in succeeding. I found a bunch of people who were like, oh, I, I'm supposed to get a certification, but I have no idea how to study for a test. I'm like... Oh, let me hook you up. Like, let, let's do this together. And then to the same company that wouldn't let me expense my Cybex book because it wasn't within my role, all of a sudden I'm giving effectively thousands of dollars in free training to another team. And I almost did it because they didn't want me to, because I wanted to help those people way more than I wanted the I'm going to learn this new technology just to books spite you. Yeah, like that was, a, I'm like, I don't want the book. You know, I guess I just wanted to know that what I was doing was valuable. And, and but so for me, I'm like, I'm going to take value from it no matter what, because I'm going to teach four people how to get their CCNA. And they did, you know, and it's funny that I learned the more and more I talked to incredible technologists that there's always a thing that they're really good at 
but they have trouble with other areas. It's normal. Like I had a Java developer, this guy, he was an incredible Java developer. And all of a sudden they said, oh, we need to write something. We just bought some product and it only has a, like a C, you know, plus plus AP, whatever, something C plus plus SDK, something like that. You're either going to have to bridge it or you have to learn it. Yeah. Yeah. So the guy goes home on the weekend, comes back and is like, oh, I rewrote this application in, in C and I like, or whatever. And like, Dude, that is incredible. And then every 35 days, I would get a phone call from the help desk. Hey, it's Larry. Um, I can't, I seem to be locked out of my system. Every 35 days, Larry would not know how to re reset his password. So every 35 days, I would manually help Larry reset his password. And then he would go home on the weekend and relearn a new language. But he, every 35 days, couldn't learn how to change a password. So there was like incredible skill and an area where nothing, he didn't care. It never would mm -hmm. matter to him that he was better at this one thing. So what made me good at being the desktop support for folks like Larry was knowing that I'm not going to browbeat him because he, I know, and see in 35 days, Larry, you know, like we would just be, levels make a joke out of it, you know, is being able to interact with incredibly smart people and not make them feel dumb on an area that they don't feel confident about. And this is the, like the reason I say that is like, it's the empathy thing that you, you know, like going to an MSP and learning what matters to them, going to a customer that's using something and learning what matters to them, going to a person who's not even in tech yet and learning what matters to them. Like, why are they getting in tech? Are they excited by tech? Are they excited by the paycheck? Are they excited by the future skills? Cause I read somewhere that I'm supposed to be a developer now. And so when we get into developer advocacy, and this is the question I, I think is kind of the core of what I, I, you and I would, I would love to cover is like, what, what are we doing wrong today in most sort of evangelism and advocacy programs that tell that we, you could solve, you think mm -hmm. in a better way? Well, there are, there are a lot of easy answers, right? You, you could say, um, there's uh, a little bit of, of messaging burnout, uh, not maybe at an infosec level <laughs> where, you know, they, they have been screaming, they've been standing on chairs for five years now saying, you know, the sky is falling really. And the sky actually is falling and we're still not as an industry addressing security, <laughs> yeah. maybe like we should. Um, but you could say, Hey, it's an interesting idea, but nobody wants it. And so it's not getting the kind of traction that we would expect. And so, okay, fine. If nobody's going to listen, it just, just from a human standpoint, you're like, I, I'm, I, I'm not going to try to help people with a thing that nobody wants. Um, I think a big part of it isn't, is not necessarily that is that, you know, I said before, it sort of got uh, SEO hijacked um, where, you know, DevOps in a box was uh, just sort of became a, a marketing push. And that obscured the fact that um, DevOps was something of us, right? Agile is something of us. Lean is something of us. Now, I'm going to say off the bat, those three things are not the same. And the conflagration of those is an example of some maybe um, uh, munged content that happened at a marketing level to say, hey, these three or these two SEO keywords, they just, can you, somebody needs to write a blog that puts these two things together. Um, then you then you basically have the practitioners who are looking at it saying like kind of on the on the operation side they're saying oh well that doesn't make any sense our job is to figure out whether a thing is real or not because we're gonna have to drive it forever um and the developers who actually find value in um uh, find value in agile or you know they their team 
you know, maybe it's a team that, that, that's been working together like a sort of enterprise uh, system services team, right? Where the, the code that they're writing is just to support internal operations. And the first time that they switch from yet another waterfall-based task management product to just sticking up Kanban boards all over the place that, that they can start to show success, picking up a card and moving it over and physically putting it on another system. Um, the small incremental changes I think have gotten lost is that we're not celebrating those little wins, those early wins, which are the thing that help people really change because the, the culture change involved in it is individual change at a time that there's not enough resources. You're under the gun for a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, you know, you look at, uh, we just did another survey this year. We've been running it for a while. And uh, to look at one of the questions that we were asking was, you know, we asked both employers and uh, professionals, you know, can you hire people um, out of school or from other businesses that have the skills that you need? And more than half of them said no. Uh, yeah. And at the same time, they won't invest uh, heavily in development and training. And so it's like, okay, if you can't hire the people you need and you won't develop the team and, and, and the team is so eager to learn. I mean, the idea that technologists don't want to, don't want to reinvent themselves. I mean, that's, that's part of it is you can, you, as you mentioned before, you can get into a language or a protocol or a company or any number of other factors that would normally silo somebody for a long time and just walk away from it. You, I, I, you say, for whatever reason, I just hate this tool and this company will not switch to something else. I'm just going to go somewhere else. And then you start to find, um, you start looking for organizations and start asking questions as a part of the interview process and really turn it around in a way that they don't expect. Like, hey, are you guys, are, 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 are y'all using Jenkins, right? Or are you CICD based or are you, are you waterfall based? Like these are questions where people now will say, hey, I've been, in a high-performing DevOps environment for the last five years or even year, I won't go somewhere that isn't that kind of environment. And we're not, I don't think we're necessarily sharing those stories, the human interest side of it, the, the sense of success to get people, um, you know, to turn it back into uh, conversion by attraction, as opposed to you're going to do this. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, we had a lot of almost dictatorial, um, you know, edicts that you would see. And anytime someone says, we're going to be all X by, the, yeah, by this right. date, right? We're going to be all cloud by 2018. Uh, no, that, that never happens. Um, and there was one, there was a, someone sent me an email one time and they're like, we we're over the next six months, we're going to switch to a DevOps approach. <laughs> and <laughs> it was an insurance company. And I'm like, mm, no, 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 you're not. You're not, your COBOL is not going to, is not going to enjoy that at all. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I think it's the that, weird thing that we have, we, we get, we get the goals set by parts of the org that don't affect and manage the results of the change. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the skin in the game of making these edicts is you've got a, it can't come from top down because the top down doesn't manage the day-to-day -day. and there's got to be a, a this is why feedback loops include mm -hmm. internal this is people always think of like devops is you know between two teams like no devops the feedback loop is actually between six teams right it's between right. the end consumer of the product it's the management team the budgetary owner the ciso like there's literally all these different 
people that are involved in making sure that we're on track. So if any single one of those things says, yeah, I'm totally, we're DevOps. I, I remember going to my team one time saying like, hey, I've got a development team. Like I just learned how to automate the entire build process for your environment. So that basically I could spin it up super easy so that you can like have a consistent environment when you're doing your developments. And I said, so we're going to create this idea of like kind of like a DevOps approach to managing your infrastructure. And I'm then going to build production using the same way. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, we don't need that because we already use that DevOps and we already automate all of our stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, I'm fairly sure that you don't know what DevOps means because we in the ops team have no idea that you did that. <laughs> like <Right. laughs> the feedback loop, really, really tight there, not cool. And the funny thing was, it was more them just like, it was the, the NAH problem, not invented here. Like no one wanted to accept that something was good if it wasn't, in, wasn't instantiated from their team. Hmm. And so we culturally had to work a lot harder on how we interacted with them and how we celebrated the good things that they did instead of punishing them when bad code got to production you know, or when code didn't behave as expected in production. Yeah, we're just going to have our, we're going to put our developers on our uh, second tier escalation path on the weekends. That'll, that'll yeah. fix everything. So but, and that was just lose your developers. That That's it. Right. And it's, it, it's such a weird problem that we have of, and this again, like there's a reason why this theme of empathy is, is throughout what I'm discussing and why your experiences are so strong in supporting my hypothesis that this is the differentiator between good advocacy programs and good vendor relationships and, and non-good relationships is that if you don't actually listen and learn from the people that are using the thing, all right, Steve Jobs, apparently we're holding it wrong. Well, when 6 million people are holding it wrong, they're not holding it wrong. You've got, a pro you've got an application or a product problem. So it's being better as you know, technology vendors in active listening through, you know, whether it's product management, community side engagements, just, just going out to people saying like, Hey, what actually matters to you when you mm -hmm. go through this? I was actually on a call, not before, not long before this, it was the same thing. They're like, we're going to do custom, I said, we're going to build custom training for you. And they're like, okay, great. You know, what's it going to look like? Like, so this is the toughest question to answer. I'm like, what, what actually matters to you? And they said, well, the people haven't actually, that we're going to be training, haven't used the product. I'm like, perfect. And they're like, what do you mean perfect? I said, what do, you, what do you need to do better tomorrow that wasn't good today? Mm -hmm. And they're like, and then they start to think about when stuff goes down, how do you deal with this? And you start to ask these kind of sort of probing questions on what, what sucks about their day to day. Like, okay, cool. You know, how do you deal with that? when it's not a, an emergency and they're like, we just don't. And then it becomes an emergency. I'm like, okay, cool. So that's, that's the thing that I need to fix right. is before it becomes an emergency and versus, you know, well, I'm going to get you a great root cause analysis product. I'm like, whoa, what if we could actually slow the need to get to root cause analysis? It's not mm -hmm. going to defer the fact that we still need it. Let's but, talk about signals. Right. And so it became a very different way of, coming to what they actually need and then can i create a product or a way to use the product that fits that need instead of me shoehorning my use case into their day-to-day -day and failing at it 
Yeah, and I think you're exactly right. And, you know, kind of going back to, you know, what has gotten in the way of uh, adoption of uh, DevOps approaches also is that this sort of prepackaged idea, um, this is maybe five years ago, uh, around dogma, right? Like if you just, these are the processes that you have to adopt. And if you don't, you can't call yourself DevOps. And DevOps, first of all, isn't a thing. It is not a certification. It is not something that you can, um, you can get a sign off. No auditor is going to come in and say, hey, guess what? According to our governance policies, you're DevOps. Congratulations. You passed. That's right. um, but what it really is, is a set of optional techniques that you can choose, like Legos, decide which ones you're going to focus on. Um, I, you know, there's, a, there's a set that kind of goes together that you really want to focus on, but it's not something that you're being scored against. It's what parts of this aspect work in your organization. And so when you take it from that perspective, uh, the first thing that you discover is that development and ops are actually way more alike than you might think. And um, when, you know, this is that thing where... <laughs> If you talk to someone who's not a technologist, they will say something like, oh, you know, developers, they, they just want to write code. They just want to sit there all day and basically do Sudoku and, and crossword puzzles with code and, and just, you know, check the thing in and walk away and it's going to be great. That's assuming, you know, a civilian knows what a, what a Git push is. Um, but the reality is, no, I want to create something that I can tell my mom about and it's something that she uses and say, I wrote that. that, that when you click on that button, the 15 systems that are connected together to figure out how to put that together into your mobile app. I, I wrote that. There's a concurrency model that's a part of that. I was the one that figured out how to tame a whole bunch of JavaScript async behavior to make that thing work. Um, we like to, if you're a developer, you want to see your stuff in production. And then the operations team, they are the production people. They want to put things into production. They are in the business of service delivery and it makes them happy. Every hour that goes by that uh, an application is available, when you look at, um, especially if you expand your metrics to include like, you know, actually monitoring end users because now your infrastructure has gone opaque because you've gone to cloud, right? Um, to, to, to be able to know that you are providing great service includes the fact that it is sitting on a software stack and you love the software that makes up that, that stack and you really appreciate the work of those developers in everything that they do. Um, the, you, know, you, you think an end user is happy when a nagging rough edge gets sanded down. Oh, no, 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 no. Ops loves it because ops yeah. business yeah because their job is they're just going to have to paper around it right they don't necessarily always get the pull of yeah i know that thing's been running for six years and it's been certified several times and if we even touch that thing we're going to have to fully regression test it and who knows what's going to happen uh no their job is to take that thing and build either shims or automation or just you know put monitoring on it that allows them to occasionally kick the thing um when it when it gets in trouble both both of those teams are in the business of delivering services and it's the little things like um i would argue and i I've, I've been getting you know i'm working on a piece for this and i've been talking to some customers about it i would argue that pipelines delivery pipelines maybe if you aren't using them should be should be started and owned by the operations team because especially if you're going to do not only delivery but deployment which is really right. where it becomes valuable and and yes just because you go ahead and merge to master does not automatically mean that your banking application <laughs> is going to deploy that thing live you, you 
you can't have gates. <laughs> you get to have testing. Um, you get to have validation. But that the mechanisms for putting monitoring in place, like being able to say, like for, for feedback loop, for example, um, you, you put the uh, metrics and signals that are going to help you as a developer in place. But before you kick it off of your bench, you talk to somebody on the ops team and you say, hey, what else would be valuable for you when this thing is in production? The ops team will tell you, oh, hey, I only need like four other metrics that are easy to add at development. And then you're going to take that and push that into the delivery pipe. Well, what's really tricky is that if you, you know, the, it works on my desk problem, right? But then yeah. it goes to staging yeah. or prod and then it has a problem. Is that the ops team wants to make it as easy as possible to deploy software. And if they create a uniform set or at least a fairly common set of delivery mechanisms, I love it when somebody hands me the end of a pipe and says, all you got to do is adapt to this and we'll take it from here. Right. So being able to turn that around and instead of it being this throw it over the wall barrier conversation, whatever, the ops team becomes the we'll take it from here team. And right. they have a giant welcome mat in the form of their, their pipelines. And it invites everyone who wants to accomplish change, especially if you're trying to increase the rate of innovation, uh, increase the rate of deployment the tools and that early conversation about how can I make this functionally easy? Not about culture change that, that will naturally come later, but like setting base tools out that invite, invite participation across that wall. Then you find that the, the real change behind DevOps happen. It's, it's kind of like um, you, you don't know that you're in love until you are right. It's like yeah, yeah. people say, and then I realized that I was in love. Well, it's kind of not that different with DevOps. It's like you're, you're, you're doing it, you're, you're, you're going through the processes, and then all of a sudden you say, hey, you know, according to the criteria for a reasonably well-functioning DevOps shop, we're like 75%, and we haven't deployed on a Saturday night in two years. Ah, oh, this thing is amazing. Those are the stories that I think we're not capturing and promoting more. The, the thing that's interesting when we look at how to create that organizational change, it's the cart horse problem of tooling versus organizational stuff. So it, it does have to truly go in tandem. And, and the reason is because, you know, I, I get asked all the time, they're like, well, how did, how did you get people to adopt, you know, product X, right? And, and often it's just even the simplest thing like collaboration tools, you know, like we, we just tried to like, all right, everybody, we're officially, the company is taking on, we're going to use Microsoft Teams. And like, for, I'm using that as an example, but it mm -hmm. could be X, could be Y, could be whatever. Like, so product X is like, we're going to use Microsoft Teams. Everybody's like, yeah, because we already own this, you know, and they said, and we're using Skype already. So it should be a natural progression. Like, well, we're using Skype because we've always used it that before and because we didn't want to own it and they said so the fact that we own this license doesn't really mean that we're going to use it it means that we own the license you know so nine months later there are seven people in the microsoft teams environment which is the seven it people who have mandated that it's a company standard and you have 500 people who just don't go near it because they're still using skype and i said okay so i i spun up a slack environment and someone's like you know, ah, uh, you know, you, this isn't good. This isn't going to work because we tried this with teams and it didn't work. And I'm like, just watch. And sure enough, like it, I literally couldn't stop people from pouring into the environment. Mm -hmm. So 
what happened was all of a sudden when they're like, hey, so we think we should look at Slack as an alternative. I'm like, here you go. I already owned the actual team for the company because I got it like two years ago, knowing that this could happen. And by the way, we have 240 people already using it every day. And they're like, how did that happen? I'm like, I, I just gave it to them. And in fact, even more so, I told them, don't, don't use this. Whatever you do, like, don't tell anybody. But like, you know, I've got this thing over here. And the fact that they organically arrived there and started interacting with it. So when it became the standard, 260 more people jumped in immediately. Mm -hmm. There was no adoption problem. It was like, holy crap, why haven't we done this before? I'm like, well, we didn't just like mandate it and then and then introduce people to the tool i snuck it in you know and it became a thing that happened it happens all the time same with so when we do pipeline the reason why the ops team needs to actually care about the implementation is because if they just start using it and almost like don't tell the developers but this is how we're going to deploy stuff to production we're just going to paste in the artifacts that's fine we'll zip them put them in there but that this is how we do it i'm like trust me so then password in there it's fine right yeah like this is here's my the ssh keys my, my stuff's going to suck less but then it then it and then in the end they're like super proud to show it to the developer and they're like wait I've heard about this. And then they like, oh, okay, this actually works for somebody. And they now have a vested interest in doing it. And now you've got the organizational thing solved because culturally now they were like, ooh, you know, you gave them an ooh. That's the, I finally gave them something that they cared about. Not that was mandated that as of 2020 in April 4th, we will be a DevOps shop. <laughs> At 1600 Zulu. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but I mean, to your point, I mean that that is a classic case of it, the good and the bad of letting team not allowed the good and the bad of the way that teams adopt um, uh, really uh, sticky tools, right? Yeah. Uh, you, I, BlackBerry was an example of that, right? I mean, you looked at you looked at their 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 sales process was fantastic, right? So you'd have a couple of kind of cowboy hotshots um, in a company that would get their own Blackberries. And uh, they, they would love them and they enjoyed the keyboard easy to use. And like, wow, I can send an email right here in my car. This is amazing. Uh, and eventually an executive would get one and then they would have problems with it. And then someone in IT would call Ram and say, hey, I, I'm beginning to, I, this is a management problem. And they'd say, oh, we have this thing called Bez. You yeah. are gonna love Bez. Uh, you'd get that one-time big uh, new license. Uh, they'd get that one-time one new big license and uh, maintenance on the Bez server. And then the next thing that would happen was it would turn into a permission to print um, money because everyone in that company would be entitled to that monthly fee per device. Yeah. Um, it was the, de but it was the device that drove it. It was the integration and it was the bed server behind it. The magic that made it happen. Slack is one of those things where Slack has some rough edges that drive me insane. I think <laughs> I, I, I might have, I might have 11 accounts in the sidebar now. And this is yeah, what you, where you got the problem that I used to have, which right. is it's brutal. Yeah. And you look at and there, most of them aren't even internal. And um, you, so then you look, if you were in IT and you were looking at this frustration and you're talking to someone, so I, I just wish this was organized. And then you look at the list of bullet list features on teams. You say, Hey, this does all the same things. This is fantastic. And we're just going to switch to this. And then nobody says, yeah, but what are we going to do with the history? 
well, right. you know, it's just chat. It's like, no. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Contraire. <laughs> no, it's not. It's a searchable database of all kinds of buttery goodness. Um, and that migration can't happen. And that the other the other system remains a system of record for a really long time. And if there had been a conversation early, um, then maybe there would have been some more understanding about saying, hey, yeah, I know this is yet another thing, but our efficiency is in percent higher um, using it. Now, then that gets to sort of, not exactly observability, but rethinking what metrics are. Um, if you can start including, like I always urge teams to like start putting business metrics and team, team metrics alongside infrastructure. So in those same views that you are using to make sure that systems are operating the way you expect, you start doing things like, well, how are we doing on our close rate or our change rate? Um, yeah. you, you said before, um, you're talking about, you know, how often do you uh, make a change and you don't know whether it was successful or not. We have instrumentation all over everywhere. And you, and you ask the question, you're like, well, how have you instrumented your change process? Well, what do you mean? Okay, how do you correlate, <laughs> how do you correlate uh, change rate to error rate? And then that, and then there's a brief moment where you sort of see this look of, oh, this is another hard thing. And then say, hold on a second. Let's talk to, let's talk about error rate and error budget. And the next thing you know, and at first there's a, oh, I've heard of these things and now we're into DevOps and that's a whole lot yeah, of- I've things. heard of your foo-foo DevOps You're, stuff yeah, before. <laughs> or, or we're not SREs here and that doesn't make sense. And then I think one of the things that is really cool about talking you know, being rooted in users, people who are actually working in technology every day, is that instead of having this high-level conversation about what it, the benefits of it, X, Y, Z, you're basically saying, you can start with a question, which is, how do you know whether you're in a period of fixing things or you're in a period of changing things to improve them? And the answer is, well, we kind of do both at the, at the same time. And then you say, well, listen, error rate and error budget are all about helping you communicate with management to make them feel that you have risk under control that's gonna allow you to make big changes and innovate. And then at the same time, if you lean too forward on your skis on that, your error rate starts to go up. It's like, we can show you we're gonna transition to break fix. You create some dashboards with those metrics that they can see. And then every now and then you sort of see this spike in error and then you see the error, the error budget starting to burn down. There's that email like, hey, y'all on this? Yep, we're on this. And then the next day, all of a sudden the error rate starts to come back down again. And then you realize now you're in a fixed, you're in a fixed period. And they think about budgets, right? The further you go up in management, the more they are actually thinking really about the finances of the company, like and yeah. how they are, how they are driving the bottom line. And so now you're talking to them in terms that they're really comfortable with. And I don't know, the let's say the more experienced I become, um, is the euphemism for turning gray. I'm beginning to think, and you tell me if this, if you did the same thing earlier in your career, when you bring business and technologists together and you say, you know, we need, we need all the information, we need all the details. And one group has one set of taxonomy and uh, uh, words that they use to communicate their desires. And the other one has a completely different, what we need is a union of these two sets. This is going to be perfect. And then we'll have all the words in one place. But the business doesn't care about the things that we care about and that we will switch into super enthusiastic um, evangelical mode about and we just lo lose them. But then there are also some words that are really important to business that they'll start talking about because they're comfortable with. And then, and then we get lost as well. And so 
the, the older I get, the more I'm beginning to realize that the goal is actually to identify the intersection of those two sets, to reduce the jargon on both sides and simplify that communication as to really get it down to the basics. Like we have too much spoilage in this particular um, processing facility. Right. And so then the conversation turns into, oh, well, we're going to go take a look at the data and we'll see what's going on. And then technology team comes back and says, hey, you know what? We're, we're really just, we're hitting these rules on uh, expiration because we're not, our, our scanning guns aren't working and uh, we need to move some access points around, right? And so all of a sudden now the spoilage rate starts to come down and that conversation was one about production. It wasn't about, it wasn't a, a bunch of Excel spreadsheets and hey, we have this problem. And then an interpretation on the business side that then it's like, well, we, we don't know what's causing this and maybe y'all could go investigate a solution. And then what's lost is an opportunity to fix it without buying anything. And I know that may sound like sacrilege, but increasingly, I think the job, if you are really thinking about the the, the people that you want to help is like, the first question is, how can I help you improve your uh, operations? How can I help you have a longer weekend with what you already have? And the, the great thing about that is, you know, I mentioned before, you know, I think you know, I've talked about it before that, you know, complexity isn't of itself becoming the problem is that just starting with that, just to, to say, Hey, not here to sell you anything. I'm, I'm here to, let's look at what you have. You were saying, I'm interested in how you got to where you are. I am interested in what you have. I'm interested in what makes you a snowflake. I'm interested to know what your competitors are doing. And it is quite likely that from a technology perspective, you may have 90% of what you need. And it's about people and it's about culture and it's about communication change. That is an opportunity to then earn the right to talk about something that's actually a technical solution later because you've, you've been helpful up front. Definitely. And it's the, uh, the, when people say like, what's the, the book to read to describe technology? It was funny. We've kind of adapted to, especially in the DevOps world, we talked about the Phoenix project became a, a better, sort of a Bible of things. And, and then ultimately the, the next one was the unicorn project, which has got much more technical, mm -hmm. uh, but the Phoenix project, if we go to its roots and where Gene Kim and the, and the group yeah, came from, it was Eli Goldrat. It's, it's mm -hmm. the goal. And, you know, so I went back and I read the goal and I've, I since have reread it a few times and it's literally just a human story to describe exactly this. And it becomes the thing of like, oh yeah, if I can solve this other problem, the downstream effect of that means you effectively create budget for tools and things that you didn't know you had. So instead of immediately going into spend mode, it's like, hang on a second, let's go back and reconcile what we've got already. And I would lay bets that if you, if you actually look at why you do what you do today, you've probably got a lot of this gold just sitting right here in your own backyard. Mm -hmm. And it's also the fun of the, my favorite gold rat ism uh, is uh, that he describes it when you, when you give people goals and metrics and of measurement, but he says, it's show me how you measure me and I'll show you how I behave. Right. So mm -hmm. if you go to somebody and you say, your goal is reducing, you know, sev one tickets. Do you know what they do? They start registering a whole lot more Sev2 tickets, right? Thresholds like, start getting set lower. Yeah, it becomes a thing of like, well, you know, murders are down, but violent crimes with a fatal ending are up. 
<laughs> and you're like, I think you're actually talking about the same thing here. <laughs> I, I, I go back and forth on the Phoenix project. Now I have a hardback copy that Gene signed for me at DevOps Days Austin. And that was that Monsters of Talk tour that also had, uh, it was Kelsey's one of, you know, his first you know, really high profile presentations. And um, he, when I first read it, I'm like, yes, this is totally it. I'm literally watching a traditional organization transform and adopt these practices organically. And yes, each one of these characters represents somebody that you know, and it is really valuable from the perspective of you know, you can do it. You know, it's, it's like, it's yeah, like, yeah, it's like, right. it, it, like it is possible and it takes something that's really abstract and, and turns it into concrete examples of how it is, how it is used. But over time, um, it does, it can do a bit of disservice if you don't take it with a grain of salt, because if you think, oh, if I just do all the things in this book, everything's going to be, everything's going to work out great. I'm going to be able to, uh, my change rate's going to go up, my error rate's going to go down, costs are going to go down, and most of all, um, our business is going to grow. The thing about the Phoenix Project is you're talking about a business with nothing to lose. Yeah. Right? <laughs> they don't care about risk because it is an existential threat that they are going to fold or be acquired or something else is going to happen, right? And businesses have a lot to lose. And risk is real. And risk is the veto button on, um, uh, you and I have seen lots of projects that would have been fantastic where misunderstanding what the real risk was or not being able to, to accurately describe it or to mitigate it was the end of that project. And a lot of times ones where you start down the path, risk says no, there's a retrenchment and it's so severe that now the next time you intend to actually accomplish that change, nobody's even gonna talk about it right? Yeah. Because the risk alarm goes off and everybody freaks out. And so risk a lot of like, how many, how many times have you seen people start to adopt some of the, the techniques um, of DevOps, you know, inspired by, inspired by the Phoenix project, and then it doesn't work or they, the, the communication about it, or maybe the, the, uh, the scope is too large. And then someone or someone who cares about the business and should legitimately be concerned about risk. I mean, they, they are the ones that are making sure that stockholder value is maintained, um, says no. And then everyone just says, fine, we're never going to accomplish it. So then you realize, okay, risk analysis needs to be part of this conversation. That's not in the book. Yeah, it's right? so it's not a it's not a how to guide. No, no, and that and that's the good thing. So, uh, so sadly, I could we could we could run this all day long. I could cut into like seventeen different podcasts, and this would be a basically a Harvard Business Review on how to DevOps and how to do developer advocacy. Right? There's so much that people have learned in in what you talk about, and and I I love that your passion in telling the stories and listening to the people to relate the fact why it does or doesn't work. There's nothing wrong with recognizing. Yeah. That's a great example, right? Instead of we're not going to run around like holding the Phoenix project, like it's the Bible, you know, it is a tome of knowledge. Yes. It's when, inspirational. And that's, when, that's the first step. Right. You know, it's like, so the, the good thing is, Go forth and and listen. I'll encourage anybody's in tech, anybody's in business. You know, walk to the other side of the cubicles, to the area that you don't normally go to. 
just kind of peer over the cubicle walls and said, Hey, what are you guys doing for lunch? Right. Mm-hmm. Sit down and listen to how those folks are living and what, what stuff sucks about their day. And you have found yourself the first path to successful advocacy. And that is, it's every part of what we do. And I think more and more people just need to do this on a daily basis. And, and Patrick, you've got so many great things that you do. Um, so maybe let's introduce folks. How do they reach you online if they want to talk more about you, this stuff that we're talking about, even the solar winds work that you do. You guys have your lab stuff that's just phenomenal. Some of the most amazing, like really well-produced content. Uh, God, there's just so many good things. So lay it on us. So where do we find you if we want to reach you online? Well, of course, um, you know, our, our Thwack user community, uh, that's thwack.com is a, is a great place, especially because uh, you get to end up participating in conversations with a whole lot of other people. Um, it's large. It is so large. There's, uh, you're almost guaranteed to find somebody. Notice I use the, the marketing almost word there uh, <laughs> to find somebody who is within your domain, who's using the same kind of processes, gear and uh, tech that you are. Um, I'm, you know, really, really, uh, I'm in that community on a regular basis. That's a, that's a great way to reach me. But, um, you know, my, my DMs are open and Twitter is a, a fantastic way to get me. I'm uh, at Fervent Geek. Um, and, you know, reach out. Um, one, of the, one of the great things uh, about SolarWinds is that we get to anyone in the company can uh, pick up the phone and call a customer at any time. And I spend a lot of my time on the phone. And if I call you, it's going to sound like, hey, I'm uh, Patrick I'm from SolarWinds and I'm not here to sell you anything. I just want to kind of talk to you about what you're doing, right? And so that that process of just let me know you want to chat and um, I will be happy to, to uh, engage and start a conversation because I'm always looking for um, a new, new uh, opportunities to learn more about what people are actually doing and, and, and what's going on in IT. Because at the end of the day, um, advocacy is just a fancy word for being helpful. And helpfulness is about people. And it doesn't matter if you're a developer or you're an IT professional or you're an end user. Um, taking the time to have a conversation and get to know somebody and ask them, what are you really trying to do here? That's universal and it has nothing to do with technology. And it's where all of the best parts of what we do start. That it is. That it is. Good lessons. Good lessons. Patrick, thank you very much for taking the time. And uh, uh, I'd say Fervent Geek is also one of the best handles uh, and, and, and it should be tagged with genuinely good human. You're, uh, you're a good person Aww. for what you do. And it's, uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Well, Eric, thank you so much. It's a, it's a privilege to be on the podcast and I, I just, it's great to catch up with you. We'll see you all at a uh, many, many events, I'm sure, in the coming months. That's for sure. (laughs) All right. We'll see you.